Hello, this is Dan, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Saturday-Sunday, June 3rd through 4th, 2023 issue of the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Winners and Losers Emerge in Debt Accord by Natalie Andrews. The debt ceiling that passed the Senate on Thursday was the result of weeks of negotiations by the Biden administration and House Republicans with leaders on each side claiming victory. Here's a look at the people who emerged from the grueling negotiations as winners and the ones who lost. Winners. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California. McCarthy showed he could negotiate a deal with the White House and two-thirds of his conference to avoid default and still keep his job for now. After passing a bill in April to address the debt ceiling solely with Republican votes, McCarthy had the upper hand. The bill set the parameters for the talks from spending cuts to changes by, to permitting rules for energy projects. While McCarthy is now facing criticism from the most conservative Republicans, those critics also admit that they don't have the votes to oust him. His next challenge will come as he tries to pass 12 appropriations bills through Congress. Representatives Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana, and Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina. The top negotiators for the Republicans took many victory laps this week. While McHenry is the Financial Services Committee chairman, Graves was largely unknown until he emerged as a strong ally and deal maker for McCarthy in January. For the past two weeks, the two have developed a sort of jokester bromance relationship with joint TV appearances. President Biden. Biden staked out a position demanding a clean debt ceiling increase. In the end, his administration didn't get that, but Biden successfully defended much of his climate and tax agenda while greatly paring back the spending cuts initially proposed by Republicans. The deal got more votes from Democrats than Republicans in both the House and Senate. Biden negotiated the next debt limit deadline to be after the 2024 presidential election, avoiding another shutdown next year. He avoided cuts to entitlement programs and resisted GOP calls to instill work requirements to qualify for Medicaid. White House negotiators also were able to eliminate the food stamp work requirements for veterans, homeless people, and young people leaving foster care, increasing the number of people who qualify for the program, although the age for the able-bodied adults with no dependents requiring work rose from 49 to 55. Shalanda Young and Steve Reschetti. The two White House negotiators designed, or excuse me, de designated by Biden, found themselves showered with praise by the Republicans who worked with them. They delivered a deal that could be sold to Democrats and get over the finish line. Even as some progressives complained about the deal, they didn't turn their fire on Young or Reschetti. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. The senator has long been fighting to expedite the permitting 
for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a 303-mile natural gas pipeline in West Virginia and Virginia that has been tied up in litigation by opponents. Several in his own party oppose it. The debt ceiling legislation clears the path for the pipeline. Ukraine. The question of whether Congress would send more funds to help Ukraine fight back against Russia's invasion has been up in the air since Republicans won the House. Expecting as much, lawmakers gave Ukraine a large boost of money last December, before the power dynamics changed. But when Republican spending hawks in the Senate balked at the deal crafted by Biden and McCarthy, Senate leaders pledged to take up a supplemental spending bill for the Pentagon that would address Ukraine, Israel, and China. Centrists in Congress. Lawmakers who say they want bipartisanship got a deal that brought just that. It was a deal that lawmakers from both parties could praise and call a compromise. Lawmakers in the center focused on the changes in permitting regulations that will help bring more energy projects to fruition, and that veteran benefits were protected. Many of these lawyers from both parties are concerned about the deficit and touted that the bill would address spending. The global economy. Wall Street pros and others around the globe had been watching with increasing anxiety as Republicans and Democrats seemed incapable to strike to striking a deal to raise the debt ceiling. If they hadn't reached an agreement, the country soon would have been unable to pay its bills and issue new debt. Losers. Former President Donald Trump. Trump repeatedly encouraged Republican lawmakers to default on the nation's debt, or at least go to the brink. His comments were largely ignored by members of Congress. Many Republicans said Trump's comments wouldn't sway them one way or another. He also stayed fairly silent once the deal was out. That drew fire from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who mocked him for not taking a clear position. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York. Schumer was largely cut out of the negotiations, then forced to sell a deal to his party that was decided between the White House and House Republicans, though his staff was involved in crafting the deal. Schumer does get credit for passing the bill the day after the House did so. The historically slow Senate moved the bill faster than the House did, even with 11 amendment votes. Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia. Kaine has opposed Congress putting its thumb on the scale for energy projects, such as the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which cut through his state, and he was dismayed that a green light for it made it through in the debt ceiling bill. House Freedom Caucus. The House Republicans' far-right flank was involved in negotiations in April. Much of what they called for early on made it into the bill that passed solely with GOP support in the House. But they were largely cut out of the final negotiations as McCarthy cut a deal that left out most of their priorities, including deeper spending cuts and a repeal of Biden's signature climate and energy bill. Progressive Caucus. The Democratic Party's left flank called for Biden to use the 14th Amendment to avoid negotiating with Republicans. They said they wouldn't accept any legislation that strengthened work requirements for federal food aid, and they didn't want domestic spending cut. 
The final product did increase the age of work requirements for food benefits and impose caps on domestic spending. As a result, many progressives voted no, but it passed with ease anyway. Entitlements Reform Advocates Congress punted on in addressing Social Security and Medicaid. Though, though the programs make up a large part of government spending, McCarthy said this week that he had hoped to create a bipartisan commission to look at mandatory spending, which would include Social Security and Medicaid. The Navy Yard, Chipotle. Chipotle. Last Saturday, McCarthy, Graves, and McHenry headed out for lunch. They went to a Chipotle near the Capitol, only to leave because it was out of chips. They relocated to a different Chipotle several blocks away and brought back chips for reporters outside McCarthy's office. Graves, a vegetarian, said he got a veggie bowl. Continuing with U.S. News, For DeSantis, People Skills Take Effort by Alex Leary in Laconia, New Hampshire and John McCormick in Council Bluffs, Iowa. It was already nearly 80 degrees when government Governor Ron DeSantis walked into VFW Post 1670 just after 9 a.m. Thursday. I did my part. I brought the Florida sunshine for you, he said to laughter in Laconia, New Hampshire. The quip was part of an effort by DeSantis to address a persistent criticism that he lacks the folksy style of campaigning expected in states that hold the first nomination contests. It is an approach that differs from his two TV-driven bids for Florida governor, and his recent appearances suggest his handlers believe the solution is to lean into small talk as he tries to connect with voters. DeSantis is also trying to leverage his working-class roots. I was a blue-collar kid, he said, wearing jeans and black cowboy boots. He mentioned his steelworker grandfather and thanked the crowd of 150 people for sharing New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. DeSantis was well-received at events this past week in Iowa and New Hampshire, where the first GOP contests will be held early next year and where voters have come to expect one-on-one interactions with candidates. At times, he displayed discomfort with the ritual of retail politics. He didn't take questions from voters, as is tradition, and he snapped at an Associated Press reporter when asked, why not? Are you blind? Are you blind? DeSantis said to the reporter as he worked the room in Laconia for about eight minutes following a nearly hour-long stump speech. Autograph, signs, hats, and baseballs and making small talk, people are coming up to me, talking to me, whatever they want to talk to me about. The exchange is likely to be overlooked, if not celebrated, by a GOP electorate that tends to be hostile toward the mainstream media. But such a tone directed at a voter would likely carry a political price. Former President Donald Trump, campaigning Thursday in Iowa, tried to capitalize on the outburst. I see these politicians... They all don't want to take questions. They read a speech, he said at an event in suburban Des Moines before taking audience questions. Trump has worked hard to try to solidify the narrative about DeSantis. He needs a personality transplant, and those are not yet available, 
the nomination frontrunner said recently. DeSantis, 44 years old, has long been viewed by colleagues as introverted and, to some, aloof. As a congressman, he was seen in the hallways wearing earbuds, which limited his conversations with others, according to former colleagues, and was more comfortable talking about policy than himself. His chief selling point is the conservative agenda he passed in Florida. I'm not taking issue with the topics he discussed. I'm taking issue with the delivery, says Vikram Mancharamani, age 49, who was in the crowd in Laconia. I really wanted more interactivity. I didn't want a monologue. Retail politics isn't the norm in Florida, a state of 22 million people with 10 major media markets, though aides to DeSantis, a frequent presence on Fox News, says the caricature of him not being able to connect with everyday people is incorrect. DeSantis's staff has been encouraged by his use of more biography in his speeches. He was a standout baseball player and served in the Navy, for instance, and he is taking time afterward to talk with voters, even if that doesn't provide for time to take on substantive questions. If I want brain surgery, I don't want a doctor with a good bedside manner. I want the best brain surgeon, says Jan Farley, age 60, who arrived in Laconia on the fence between Trump and DeSantis. It's not a deal breaker for me, personality, she said. It helps. He needs to be able to relate. Following a Wednesday speech in Council Bluffs, Iowa, Governor DeSantis spent about 10 minutes shaking hands, giving autographs with a black Sharpie pen, and posing for photos. He joked with one signature seeker that an autograph from his wife, who was working her own scrum about 20 feet away, was more valuable than his. Before a photo with an admirer, the governor clenched his teeth a bit and worked to form a smile. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. California kicks off uproar over paying college athletes by Luis Radnofsky and Lane Higgins. California lawmakers have moved on to the next big battleground in the convulsive world of college sports, sharing the industry's wealth with athletes. California State Assembly on Thursday passed a bill to require universities in the state to use all new athletic revenue generated by sports, such as football and basketball, to pay players. It could give athletes a slice of tens of millions of dollars each year and has already set off alarm bells for college sports officials. The institutions that control college sports view the California legislation as the most imminent threat yet to their vision of amateur athletics. College sports has been rocked by changes to rules that have undermined its longtime version of amateurism, which long involved awarding scholarships but prohibiting almost any other kind of payment to athletes. In the last four years, states led by California have forced the industry to allow players to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. There are also accelerating legal fights over whether athletes are entitled to the minimum wage and other worker benefits. But California's latest bill, college sports officials say, is the one that keeps them awake at night. If California's College Athlete Protection Act takes effect, said one administrator from the PAC-12 conference, it will be impossible to run university athletic departments in the way they long have been operated. 
The bill was widely expected to pass the assembly. Both sides see a tougher fight ahead in the state Senate. Athletes' rights advocates believe the California legislation puts the most significant win of their careers within their grasp, one that would definitively shred the idea that college athletes cannot be paid by their schools for playing sports. I see it as an existential threat to the injustice in college sports, says Ramogi Huma, the president of the National College Players Association. The California bill is intended to share the rapidity the rapidly expanding revenue pool generated by college sports as it grows in the future. Beginning in the 2023-24 school year, revenue generated that exceeds their school's 2021-22 revenue will be shared among athletes. That could include a windfall for University of Southern California and University of California Los Angeles football players after their schools move in 2024 to the Big Ten, as they would benefit from the conference's $7.5 billion seven-year media rights deal. It could also mean a boost for San Diego State players after its bracket-busting men's basketball team made it to the final of the 2023 NCAA tournament. Payments to players would be based on a formula in which half of the money is set aside for male athletes and half for female athletes every year and then apportioned equally among players and programs that generate revenue over the 2021-22 baseline after the cost of players' school scholarships have, has been deducted. The exact figures for what the bill's backers call an athlete's fair market value won't be calculable until schools file revenue reports each year. But in one sign of how much money could be on the table, the bill includes a provision that requires schools to pay out up to $25,000 of what they owe players within 60 days of filing a revenue report, with the rest set aside in a fund that players will receive only after they complete their degrees. Schools would have discretion over how to share any remaining money in the men's or women's pools after compensating players in revenue-generating programs, a provision that could bring paychecks for graduating female athletes even in sports that don't turn a profit. The bill set the first payday for March 2024, based on revenue generated this year. The bill also would establish and enforce health and safety standards and require richer schools to pay current and former athletes' sports-related medical expenses. The consternation and excitement around the bill is all because it's coming out of California, which in 2019 effectively created the current athlete endorsement era when legislators passed a bill establishing in-state players' right to profit from the use of their name, image, and likeness. The NCAA threatened to exclude California schools if the governor signed the bill. The governor signed it anyway. And almost immediately, other states began to work on their own NIL bills to avoid getting left behind in recruiting quickly rendering the NCAA's stance almost irrelevant. The College Athlete Protection Act of 2023 further establishes California as a leader in protecting the rights of college athletes, said the bill's sponsor, Democratic Assemblymember Chris Holden. Huma says he is already in touch with some of the lawmakers in states that followed California, encouraging them to be ready to move again. 
The biggest conferences share Huma's belief that what happens in college sports in California isn't going to stay in California, and they are determined not to see the institutions of college sports follow the Golden State's example. This time, the conferences are taking the lead, while the NCAA sticks to telling athletes what it sees as the negative consequences of the bill. The Pac-12 and Big Ten, flanked by officials from the University of California, California State Systems, and Stanford, have fanned out to lobby Sacramento lawmakers against the bill. They've been targeting representatives who have expressed support for the measure in a last-ditch attempt to persuade them to change their minds, said a person familiar with the Pac-12's efforts. The big conferences are also looking to Washington, where they've hired a public affairs firm to help them argue to Congress for a federal bill that preempts state laws requiring revenue sharing, which they want within months to try to beat California to the punch. A federal bill is a major long shot when Congress is deeply divided on most most things and somewhat unified around the idea of being skeptical of the NCAA. Revenue-sharing opponents' best hope is getting back backing from the lawmakers who haven't staked out hard positions on athlete compensation, but feel fondly about college sports teams and could be motivated by the idea that college sports might not look the way it does today. Everybody in Congress either roots for a sports team or went to a college somewhere, said one person familiar with the effort. Moving now to the world news. China wants U.S. to feel risk in region. Beijing throttles communication, reflecting fear of military in its backyard. By Austin Ramsey. Hong Kong. When a Chinese jet fighter banked 400 feet in front of a U.S. spy plane flying over the South China Sea last week, it was the latest close encounter between the rival military powers highlighting the risk of escalation. The U.S. has warned that the two militaries aren't communicating. China rebuffed Washington's push for face-to-face between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu at an annual security conference in Singapore this week, pointing to sanctions Beijing has put on Li. Beijing's determination to throttle the channels of communication reflects China's anxiety over the U.S. military's presence in its backyard and a determination to make Washington feel a sense of risk over those operations, political and military analysts say. If China cooperates with the U.S., then the U.S. can play this dangerous game again and again, says Wang Yiwei, a professor of international studies at Renmin University in Beijing, recalling a 2001 collision over the South China Sea that killed a Chinese fighter pilot and forced a U.S. surveillance plane to make an emergency landing on China's Hainan Island. Austin walked over to Lee and shook his hand before a dinner at the Singapore conference Friday, but the two weren't expected to hold a formal meeting. U.S. officials said China delivered its refusal in unusually blunt language. Earlier in the week, the U.S. defense chief issued said a misunderstanding could spiral out of control because the Chinese and U.S. militaries aren't communicating. China's chilly approach to relations with the U.S. military comes as Beijing shows a willingness to engage on other matters. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and her Chinese counterpart Wang Wangtao discussed trade and investment over dinner last month in the first cabinet-level meeting in Washington between the two sides since President Biden took office. 
Before that, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi, China's top diplomat, met in Vienna for talks. The Indo-Pacific region has been a growing focus for the U.S. as it targets what the Pentagon has called China's increasingly coercive and aggressive actions in the region, including in disputed parts of the South China Sea. South China claims most of the South China Sea is its territory, ignoring a ruling by an international tribunal that said those claims have no legal basis. In recent months, the U.S. has flown surveillance missions in the South China Sea and carried out so-called freedom of navigation operations, including sailing a warship near Mischief Reef, which China turned into an artificial island that is used as a military outpost. The U.S. also has struck deals to deploy more military assets in allied countries, such as the Philippines and Australia. The Chinese military's reluctance to engage may reflect embarrassment at the success of U.S. efforts to strengthen its presence in Asia, including growing cooperation with Australia, Papua New Guinea, the Philippines, and South Korea, said Michael J. Green, who was Senior Asia Director at the National Security Council under George W. Bush and is now Chief Executive of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. Such insecurity would explain China's split personality when it comes to rapprochement with the U.S., said Colin Coe, a research fellow for the S. Rajatram School of International Studies in Singapore. I think China feels it has more leverage on the economic side, so it appears willing to engage in high-level talks, he said. On the security side, that is where you see some reservations because they lack that leverage. For China's military, the People's Liberation Army, the riskiness of encounters such as the one between the jet fighter and the U.S. spy plane over the South China Sea is part of the goal as it tries to erode the ability of the U.S. and its allies to operate in the region, Green said. CIA chief made a secret Beijing visit. CIA Director William Burns made a secret trip to China last month in a bid to keep lines of communication open, a U.S. official said Friday, as security relations between the two global powers grow increasingly acrimonious. Burns' trip to Beijing was the highest-level visit by a Biden administration official since the U.S. and China tangled over a suspected Chinese spy balloon earlier this year. It comes as the two countries are increasingly at odds over the self-governing island of Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, and other issues. Last month, Director Burns traveled to Beijing, where he met with Chinese counterparts, and emphasized the importance of maintaining open lines of communication in intelligence channels, the official said. Burns' meetings, which were limited to Chinese intelligence officials, were earlier reported by the Financial Times. The CIA and the White House declined to comment. U.S.-China dialogue on security and diplomatic matters has soured since a Chinese balloon, which Washington said was used for spying, traversed the continental U.S. and was shot down by the military in February. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has been more interested in having his underlings engage with their U.S. counterparts over economic and trade issues amid a gathering slowdown in the world's second-largest economy. In recent days, Chinese state media, officials, and academics have stepped up efforts to reject claims by President Biden and his European allies that their intention is to de-risk, not decouple, 
from the Chinese economy, as the U.S. and its European partners seek to explain new restrictions on economic ties with Beijing. A change in words does not mean a difference in action, the official Xinhua News Agency said in a commentary last week. De-risking is just decoupling in disguise. This by Warren P. Strobel and Ling Ling Wei. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. U.S. is ready to seek Russian nuclear talks by Michael Gordon. The Biden administration is ready to begin talks without preconditions with Moscow on steps to limit nuclear arms after the New START treaty expires in 2026, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said in a speech Friday. But the limits on U.S. nuclear forces that the administration might accept at that point would be influenced not only by the size of Russia's nuclear arsenal, but also by the pace of China's nuclear buildup. Rather than waiting to resolve all of our bilateral differences, the United States and is ready to engage Russia now to manage nuclear risks after the New START accord collapses, Sullivan said. We are prepared to enter into those discussions. Sullivan's speech comes as the lattice work of arms control agreements have been battered by the downturn in U.S.-Russia relations, including Moscow's invasion of Ukraine last year. In February, Russia said it was suspending its participation in the New START treaty, which cuts U.S. and Russian long-range nuclear arms. In response, the Biden administration said it would no longer exchange key data on its strategic forces, including updating its missile and bomber locations. Despite that, Russia's foreign ministry has said that Moscow plans to observe the limits on the number of strategic warheads that can be deployed under the accord until it expires in February 2026 to maintain stability in the nuclear missile area. The prospects for future arms control after that point is highly uncertain. No U.S. and Russian arms control discussions are underway, and Washington repeatedly has failed to draw China into discussions of how to manage nuclear risks. In his Friday appearance, which was hosted by the Arms Control Association, Sullivan renewed the administration's appeal to walk with Beijing without preconditions. We are available for crisis communication, and we're available for strategic discussions about everything from space to cyberspace to stability. Biden administration officials say it is too soon to specify what sorts of limits the U.S. might accept on its nuclear forces after the new start lapses. As Washington seeks to deter both Russia's sizable nuclear arsenal as well as China's growing nuclear force. The National Security Advisor made the point that a future U.S. nuclear force doesn't need to exceed the combined forces of China and Russia, two adversaries whose military cooperation has grown in recent years. Sullivan also said that new conventionally armed hypersonic missiles the U.S. military is planning to field could reduce the need for the Pentagon to deploy more nuclear weapons. Still, he acknowledged that China's growing nuclear capabilities would factor into the administration's determinations on what nuclear limits the U.S. could accept after new START expires. The type of limits the United States can agree to after the treaty expires will, of course, be impacted by the size and scale of China's buildup, Sullivan added. Continuing on with the world theme, Warlords Ratchet Up Feud Ahead of Offensive by Thomas Grove. A growing feud between two of Russia's most powerful warlords has broken out into the open following the withdrawal of the paramilitary Wagner Group from eastern Ukraine, Flashpoint City, Bakhmut, 
exposing the rifts in the Russian President Vladimir Putin's war machine ahead of an expected Ukrainian offensive. The rivalry between Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin and Chechen leader Ramzan Kadriov highlights some of the first public criticism aimed at Prigozhin, who has become one of the biggest thorns in the Kremlin's side. His star rose in recent months as his troops slowly captured Bakhmut, but in doing so, he spent months accusing the Russian Defense Ministry of not providing his troops with proper ammunition. Earlier this week, as his troops were pulling out of Bakhmut to be replaced by Kadriov's forces, Prigozhin questioned the ability of the Chechen forces to take all of Ukraine's Donetsk province. Russia claims the entire province, which it refers to as the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, as its own, but still lacks complete control of the territory. I think they have the forces for it, but it's not worth it for them to free all of DNR, said Prigozhin on Telegram. They will occupy certain areas. The comments started a firestorm among Kadriov's loyalists, including his ally Adam Delimpikinov, who threatened Prigozhin to meet in person to clear up misunderstandings about their capabilities. Of course, Yevgeny, you don't understand this, and you needn't understand, Delimitikhanov said in a video. You can get in touch any time and name the place where we can meet to explain whatever it is you don't get. The deployment of Kadriov's troops, which are officially a part of the National Guard but answer directly to him, could undermine Prigozhin's position both on the battlefield and more broadly in Russian society where he has gained a following for his public and often expletive-laden rants against what he called a corrupt and inefficient Russian military. The use of Kadriov's forces could also be a ploy by the Kremlin to escalate the rivalry between the two warlords, who joined forces last year to criticize the Russian Defense Ministry after regular forces repeatedly failed to strengthen the front lines and allow Ukrainian troops to make significant gains. Kadriov, who became a leader of Chechnya in 2007, depends wholly on the support of Putin. The public feud gives him a chance to reclaim his place as the president's loyal foot soldier, a term he uses regularly to describe himself. Turning now to opinion, review and outlook, the downside of the debt deal. The debt ceiling bill passed the Senate on Thursday evening with 63 votes, though not before several senators warned about its cuts to military spending. They have a point that will have to be addressed. Republicans succeeded in reducing domestic discretionary spending, but the political price was agreeing to President Biden's defense budget request of $886 billion for 2024 and $895 billion in 2025. That's a 3% nominal increase in 2024, and it at least breaks the Democratic Party's longtime demand that every defense dollar be matched with one for social welfare. But Mr. Biden's number is a real cut in defense after inflation. The deal means U.S. spending on the military could fall below 3% of the economy for the first time since the height of the post-Cold War peace dividend in the late 1990s. No one thinks the world is more tranquil today than in 1999, as Vladimir Putin prosecutes the first European land war in 80 years. The Biden budget shrinks the U.S. Navy to 286 ships by 2025, as China ramps up to a 400-strong fleet designed to subdue Taiwan. 
Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska noted that U.S. intelligence officials recently estimated China's true defense budget in the ballpark of $700 billion, much larger than the sham statistics put out by the Communist Party. This means the U.S. is no longer the world's singular financier of military power. Senator Roger Wicker, Mississippi, argued that the U.S. may have 36 to 48 months, not decades, to prepare for when Xi Jinping says he wants to be ready for a war against the United States, a war to take over the island of Taiwan. Beijing could strike U.S. forces in Guam or Japan, lest they intervene to stop an island assault. Republicans can only expect so much in divided government, but Congress added tens of billions to Mr. Biden's defense crusts over the past two years. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas noted that the difference between the budget deal and the 5% real annual growth the Pentagon needs is the rough equivalent of four Ford-class aircraft carriers, or 90,000 of the Stinger missiles that have helped Ukraine against Russia. The debt bill includes an automatic cut in spending if Congress fails to pass its 12 spending bills. This is supposed to force Congress to do its job and preclude an omnibus megabill. But Mr. Cotton is right to warn that Democrats may still take the Pentagon hostage, quote, to extort even higher levels of welfare spending. The risk is a return to the sequester politics of 2011 that ravaged military readiness. Congress can improve this at the margins, for example, by fixing such bad Biden budget priorities as retiring hundreds of aircraft without replacements. Another option is a supplemental appropriation for Ukraine that rebuilds U.S. stocks of ammunition and missiles in multi-year contracts. Congress could also pass a special appropriation for Taiwan, where war is still preventable. The island is waiting for weapons it has already purchased, such as Harpoon anti-ship missiles. That could include money for U.S. Navy submarines or a surge in anti-ship weapons. A fair criticism is that the Pentagon could spend its money better. GOP Representative Ken Calvert has been working on civil service reform that could save billions, and another hero's call is rationalizing inefficient military health care. Congress can break the culture that Defense Department grocery stores or subsidized canoe rentals on bases are inviolable. But these projects save money only over time, and reform can't overcome a Navy roughly half the size of the Cold War fleet. Much of the Pentagon's spending goes for pay and benefits, and the only way to scrape up billions in a pinch is to raid accounts such as maintenance or flight hours. That's why General Jim Mattice said no enemy in the field had hurt military readiness more than the 2011 sequester. The worst part of the deal, the debt deal, may be the message it sends to investors. Americans have recently learned that a brittle defense industrial base isn't prepared to surge weapons for contingencies like the war in Ukraine. Companies won't pour investment into, say, expanding shipyards when Washington is announcing the defense spending is falling. The moment is ripe for a Republican presidential candidate to explain these realities to voters. Speaker Kevin McCarthy drove the best bargain he could with Mr. Biden, and the deal is better than default. But the speaker's line that the deal fully funds national defense is wrong and makes it harder to tell Americans the truth, which is that the U.S. is drifting into a dangerous period with a vulnerable military. Biden's trip and fall. I got sandbagged. 
Every political leader has pratfalls, but when they involve an 80-year-old commander-in-chief who wants to serve another six years, the moment is more fraught. President Biden tripped on a sandbag at the Air Force Academy graduation on Thursday, another in a series of stumbles. He seems to be fine, but if he's re-elected in 2024, the nation will be holding its breath until he exits at age 86. General F Gerald Ford slipped down the stairs of Air Force One. George W. Bush lurched off a Segway scooter. Barack Obama tripped getting on stage for a 2012 campaign event. But when the commander-in-chief is vigorous and relatively young, Americans can afford to laugh. Chevy Chase mocked Ford, an excellent athlete and Michigan football player, as a klutz on Saturday Night Live. Mr. Obama laughed off his stumble. I was so fired up I missed the stare. To his credit, Mr. Biden responded in similar good humor. After returning to the White House, he told reporters, I got sandbagged. Yet a fair question is whether Mr. Biden is now in process of sandbagging Democrats or the country by running for re-election at his advanced age. Americans can be thankful Mr. Biden wasn't hurt this week. Would he get up so quickly if he fell in 2025? After Mr. Biden's 2021 physical, his doctors reported that his ambulatory gait is perceptibly stiffer and less fluid than it was a year or so ago. A medical team concluded that much of his stiffness was due to degenerative wear and tear osteoarthritic changes, or spondylosis, of his spine. He has also been prescribed custom orthotics to optimize foot biomechanics. A New York Times story last year said that aides quietly watch out for him and worry he will trip on a wire. The electorate has noticed. Asked if Mr. Biden is in good enough physical health to serve effectively, 62% of Americans say no, according to a recent Washington Post ABC poll. Asked if he has the mental sharpness, 63% say no. That's despite the White House protecting the president with a minimal schedule. Imagine the nightmare of democracy if next year's October surprise is another fall that results in a more serious injury. It isn't unimaginable. Even then, 78-year-old Donald Trump could win a second term in a, as a healthier alternative. Democrats seem to have convinced themselves that they have no choice other than to rally around Mr. Biden, since he has decided to seek a second term. But they may be taking a bigger risk than they think, and the voters may have a different judgment about his capacity to face Chinese President Xi Jinping and other hard men into the back end of his 80s. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Continuing with opinion, Chris Christie and the Republican Party's Peril, Declarations by Peggy Noonan. If Trump Republicans propel Donald Trump over the top in the primaries, they will be doing and will have done two things. They will have made him their nominee for the presidency and they will have ended the Republican Party. I don't mean this rhetorically in the way of people walking around the past eight years crying, the party as I knew it is gone. I mean it literally. The GOP will disappear as a party, meaning the primary national vehicle of conservative thought and policy will disappear. Whether you approved or disapproved, tearing the party off its deep dug tracks in 2016, away from the things that it stood for since 1980, away from the sort of candidates it has generally put forward, was a wrench, for some, a trauma. But the party provided itself proved itself able and elastic. There was a great deal of ruin in it, as Adam Smith said. It had enough to give, it had enough give to absorb and endure. 
But a third Trump nomination, the third time it breaks. Put another way, once is what you did, made a mistake, as people and parties do. Twice is what you did almost out of loyalty for the first mistake. But a third time, that isn't what you did, it's who you are. If the party chooses Trump in 2024, it will mean it has changed its essential nature and meaning, and that it has, is a split in a way that can't be resolved by time. Republicans of the suburbs of the more educated and affluent places won't agree to be the official Trump forever party. They just won't. They will leave. Some will go third party and try to build something there. Some will blend into the Democratic Party and hope they can improve things there. Trump supporters will stay on in a smaller, less competent party. But they will, as time passes, get tired of losing and also drift on somewhere. But there will be no Republican Party after Trump 24 race, which again means the vehicle of conservative thought and policy will be gone. So the question right now isn't so much whether you like Nikki or dislike Ron. It is, do you wish the Republican Party to disappear as a force in American political history? If you answer honestly that you do, you will be leaving the entire national field open to the Democratic Party, where the rising energy will continue to be from the hard left. The old boomer moderatives of both parties are aging and leaving. Do you want to abandon America to progressive thinking? If you do, you are no longer a politically involved conservative, but more like a nihilist. It's all ugly and corrupt, blow it up, like a young Antifa activist. To think about the long term, to be strategic, to be serious about the implications of your decisions, those are good and needed things right now. In the past, we were worried here that a crowded field would equal a Trump victory. This may prove true, but the field is crowding up because Ron DeSantis started to look as if he might tank. And if he does, there has to be someone. The political ego always says, I'm someone. Maybe at the end, they will coalesce. For now, the field grows. Chris Christie is still expected to enter soon. A few weeks ago, I wrote of his street fighting ways. He is almost Trump's equal in showbiz and his superior in invective, so he can do some damage. Would it be a suicide mission? I don't know. But those kamikazes took out a lot of tankers. He has been told that if he takes down a bad guy and loses, he goes down in the history books. And if he takes down a bad guy and wins, even better. Seen this way, he can't lose. Here are two strengths and two challenges. Mr. Christie is a wholly undervalued executive talent. People forget what a good governor he was when he was being a good governor, which is not a typo. In eight years, 2010 to 2018, in deep blue New Jersey, he capped property taxes, used the line item veto to limit spending, increased school funding, got more charter schools, and got the state through the true disaster of Superstorm Sandy. He shared by text a few weeks ago what he considers his two biggest policy achievements. He won public employee pension reform with big Democratic majorities in both state legislative assembly chambers and despite huge and intense public union opposition. And interestingly, Camden was the most dangerous city in America in 2013. We fired the entire police department, rehired a new force, built around community policing and violence de-escalation. Ten years later, murder is down 63%, shootings down 68%, and robbery down 70%. No violence after George Floyd. Love him or hate him, he knows what to do with power. 
He isn't secretly flight he isn't secretly frightened of it as many politicians are. Second, he is politically gifted. In 2013, the year he won re-election by 22 points, I spent a day with him on the trail and wrote of what I saw. The presidential-sized crowds, the affection and something else. The lost joy of politics. His pleasure in the game, in the meaning of the game, his remembering that on some level it is a game, to be won or lost to cheers or boos. What a figure. A challenge. People don't remember what a golden boy he was. He was at his political height 10 years ago, in a country that barely remembers last week. He is going to have to do a lot of reminding without sounding like the guy at the bar remembering that time he kicked the field goal. And there were scandals. He's from New Jersey, where by tradition they play fast and loose, and there's no big journalism to patrol the streets and scare the aldermen on the take. And Bridgegate. People may not remember the specifics, for days in 2013, his office secretly blocked and diverted traffic on the George Washington Bridge to punish a local political foe. But they remember the outlines. He said he didn't know what his office was up to, but the damage was severe. People thought, whatever he knew, whatever he did, the leader sets the tone. At one point in the 2016 cycle, he led Hillary Clinton, but his primary bid failed, getting only 7% in New Hampshire. From the Department of Unasked For Advice, own it, big boy. Own it all. Scandals like that either deepen you, make you wiser, smack you in the head, and make you reflect. Or they kill you. It's one or the other. He doesn't look dead to me. Make it part of the story. You had everything and lost it in a big mistake that was linked to a personal flaw. I broke my own heart. All that unused talent, all the guts, what did he learn? What is it like to be, as he said, humiliated in front of the whole country? He did break his own heart. He can't say it. This is America 2023. No one here hasn't broken his own heart. Radical candor for your last chance power drive. Concede what people know and tell them what they don't or have forgotten. RFK Jr.'s candidacy stirs thoughts of what might have been by Lance Morrow. When I was a kid in the mid-1950s, I used to play touch football with Robert F. Kennedy, the father, and his crew on a field in Georgetown. I remember one Saturday morning when, despite being conspicuously pregnant, Ethel Kennedy was in the game. She lined up as a wide receiver. Bobby, as usual, was captain and quarterback. Ethel faked right, then cut to the inside, and her husband threw her a perfect spiral. She bobbled it, the ball doing a little dance in midair for a second, and then she dropped it. Bobby infuriated Custer out. The baby in Ethel's womb that morning was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. For me, Bobby Jr. seems to float in the interval between then and now, dislocated in time. His name, as he challenges Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination, arrives at a sort of double-take, trailing not-quite-dissipated contrails of the old story, heroism, martyrdom, and scandal. There's the admixture of later gossip about drugs, Kennedy, family dysfunction, and more recently attained obsession with vaccine conspiracies. The long-ago boy is now 69, which America once considered the age of an old man. Dwight Eisenhower was only a year older when he left the White House for retirement in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Bobby Jr.'s voice is strained and cracked. He suffers from spasmodic dysphonia, a voice disorder that afflicted his grandmother Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy as well. The condition makes him sound like Margaret Hamilton playing the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. But one gets used to it. Otherwise, he speaks well and uses words with notable intelligence. There is a touch of his father's charismatic 
and urgency in the forward drive of his rhetoric. He has the face of a man in late middle age with grooves like parentheses on either side of his mouth. When he talks, his face looks now and then like Norman Mailer's intensity, the eyes, perhaps an air of prophecy, the ancient mariner. His hair doesn't flop forward the way his boyish fathers did, but flows straight back from his forehead. Would I vote for him? I wouldn't vote for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, or Donald Trump. Mr. Kennedy's still unreal candidacy takes sly advantage of the this disconsolate process of elimination. Even allowing for the touch of nuttiness, I would give him respectful attention. Right now, the 2024 presidential election is at the stage of what, 1939, after Hitler's invasion of Poland, they called the phony war. Over the summer, the reality of 2024 will start to emerge from the mist. The current disillusion feels familiar. In the 70s, after assassinations, abdications of Vietnam, a pessimism about the American future descended. Lyndon B. Johnson let his hair grow long over his collar, started smoking cigarettes again, and died at his ranch in Texas. Richard Nixon flew away to bitter exile in California. Jimmy Carter became president, and his one term felt like the middle ages of the novelist John Updike's character Rabbit, Angstrom, the time of gasoline lines, oil shortages, Japanese cars, and the death of American leadership. Malaise was the word. In those days, a question would haunt some of us, an old ghost. What if RFK had lived? He could have been elected president in 68 instead of Nixon. He could have gone on to re-election in 72. The country might have been different. What, what would have happened in Vietnam? We used to ask that. There would have been no Watergate, no Ford, no Carter, and arguably no Reagan. The what-if pops up again in 2023 in the context of Bobby Jr.'s candidacy. Some Americans hearing the name again momentarily toy with the fantasy of the father's story resumed in the sun. The notion seems idle, unreal. But name recognition and involuntary reflux can be powerful. I think of the 2020s now and then as a surreal extension of the 1960s, as if the 60s had grown old and corrupt. The baby boom's great adventure played out at last. These are the 60s bereft of their naivety and idealism. The 21st century's sense of catastrophe is more fantastical, elaborate, and paradoxical than the one we knew in the 60s. The country struggles today with its surreal identity crisis and conspiracy theories, the most vivid of them being artificial intelligence, which schemes to supplant the faltering human mind and take over the world. There's an Alice in Wonderland weirdness about all this, a sense not only of decline, but of inverted reality, as if Americans had chosen dementia compounded by mediocrity as their preferred lifestyle. Or maybe the 21st century spiritual disturbance is mostly a media hysteria, a tremendous metaphysical imposture of the screens. Bobby Sr., in his brief presidential campaign in the spring of 1968, united disparate constituencies, blacks and blue-collar whites, George Wallace voters and traditional liberals, in a counterintuitive coalition that just might have worked. Bobby Jr., the longest of long shots, plays to that memory. The tribal Kennedys have always made their way forward by repeating Jack's inaugural metaphor, now flickering and little threadbare. The torch has passed to a new generation. And finally, car shopping ain't broke, so the FTC will fix it. Business World by Holman W. Jenkins Jr. When I bought my first car in 1987, I annoyed the dealer until he showed me a stack of customer invoices to prove I'd gotten the real market price. But who were these customers who paid way above market for a Honda Accord? Daddies showing off for their little girls, he told me. Car buying has been so vastly improved by the internet, there's no comparison, especially in pricing transparency. All the data show it. Yet, paradoxically, no bee has haunted the bonnets of the regulatory class over the, time, the same 20 years like the bargaining that takes place in dealerships over an auto purchase. The backstory begins more than two decades ago when class action lawyers 
based on homebrew statistical extrapolations, began arguing that blacks were getting systematically worse deals. Never mind the improbable corollary. Dealers were leaving money on the table in their dealings with everybody else. Next came Washington's new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2011, using a similar statistical malpractice to peddle an impression that upstream financiers of auto credit discriminate even though they lack an information about the downstream buyer's race. Cue the lawsuits. Regulatory opportunism against auto bargaining has been an institutionalized mainstay ever since, helped by the availability of big data and the fact that every customer's situation and willingness to pay is different. Enter that energizer bunny of the remorseless left, Linda Kahn, Joe Biden's head of the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC isn't known as a rulemaking agency, but last year found an opening to manufacture a sizable increase in paperwork, disclosure, and litigation burden for car dealers in the fine print of her agency's mandate. Under a truncated process that lets her duck the rigors of the Administrative Procedures Act, she simply asserts that the proposed rule would save consumers three hours in the 15-hour process of researching and buying a vehicle, a benefit supposedly worth $30 billion to consumers over 10 years. The 15 hours figure comes from a 2020 consumer survey by Cox Automotive, an information and advisory firm. And the three hours that would be saved? FTC just assumed it. That's right, just assumed it. This is what passes for cost-benefit analysis under the shortened procedure the agency awarded itself. The pending rule bans things that are already illegal and egregious, like charging for useless or imaginary add-ons, but it would also mandate legally actionable price declarations whenever a customer asks about a specific vehicle, and it would multiply the disclosure spiels customers have to listen to and the forms they would have to sign even to consider a purchase. The Michigan-based Center for Automotive Research hired by a national dealers organization, surveyed dealers to do what the agency didn't and rigorously estimate costs and benefits. Its finding? Dealers' costs would be $47,000 up front and $51,000 annually, and two additional employee hours would be needed to process a single transaction. Significantly increased along the way would be the 49 minutes a customer already spends in the sales office dealing with paperwork, the least liked part of the process. Where the FTC conjures a net gain to consumers of $30 billion over 10 years, the Michigan Group sees a net loss of $38 billion. Who's right, CAR or Ms. Khan? One produced an estimate based on research and analysis. The other plucked an answer from thin air. When quizzed by the Michigan researchers, dealers especially stressed an increase in litigation risk on top of paperwork, training, and manpower costs. What a surprise. Ms. Khan takes a whack at the pinata from a new angle, but the economic interest most likely to be served is still that of the trial bar. The episode is a reminder that government activist crusaders come from somewhere, and it's often not in response to a public clamor over some malfeasance. Such activist campaigns usually arise out of a pre-existing racket in which the activist class has a long-running investment, in this case suing over auto sales and loan terms. Not the least of the FTC's omissions is any good explanation of why this particular rulemaking is required at this particular time. Alas, while freely chosen by state voters and their legislatures, a real problem exists in state laws that stops customers from bypassing dealers to buy directly from manufacturers. Reform here by letting the market work really would improve the car buying experience for millions of customers, whereas by the best evidence, Ms. Khan would only make it worse.
You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the Saturday, Sunday, June 3rd through 4th issue of the Wall Street Journal. We read from the Wall Street Journal every Monday through Thursday at 11 p.m. Your reader has been Dan. Thank you for listening.